Good mic awareness, Al. <laughs> Good mic awareness. So you're actually the first director All right. that I've had as a guest on this show. Hello to you out there in radio slash well, podcast land in the coming up next work. And welcome to episode 18 of Coming Up Next. Where does the time go, friends? I can't believe we are almost into the 20s. Welcome back if you're a regular listener, and if this is your first time tuning in, there's 17 more episodes for you to check out, all full of awesome uh, and inspiring anecdotes, lessons from people who have figured out a way to live life on their terms, doing what they love, following their hearts. So go and check those out. This week's interview with, uh, with Amanda Brocci is just an awesome, awesome insight into uh, the life of a woman who is one of the most prominent writer-directors in the country. Uh, if you're unfamiliar with her work, she's uh, the writer and director of shows like Lowdown, uh, This Is Littleton. Um, she was a producer on the Agony series. And if you're unfamiliar with Amanda's work and you'd like to check some of it out, you can find Lowdown on Stan and This Is Littleton over on Presto. Uh, you may notice a slight uh, variation in the production value of this particular episode, a little bit echoey, a little bit of uh, birds chirping in here and there. I actually uh, went to Amanda's office to uh, record this one while uh, the pantsless producer, my brother, was, uh, was on hiatus in New York. So no need to adjust your monitor. Those are magpies you can hear in the background. You may notice some links in this interview uh, to the one I did with Adam Zwa. They are husband and wife, which is just such a, uh, it's such a privilege to interview two people who work so intimately in this industry um, and who have found a way to collaborate together in that. And don't forget, friends, if you're taking great value from this show, if you're enjoying the, uh, the adventure that we're on here together, uh, please head on over to patreon.com slash marksbros, chuck a couple bucks in, and be an active part of the Coming Up Next work. And you can find us on Twitter and Facebook at Podcast and facebook.com slash Podcast. You started, or your kind of breakout was um, the short film Break and Enter. Yeah. Yeah, well, that I did um, in 99, I think it was, and I, I, I went through film school in 96, so graduated at the end of that, and then I had a, a short film. My graduation film did very well, and it was screened at Edinburgh and places it, it went really well. Wow. And Which film school? At VCA, cool. the film, the film strand at VCA, I just did the postgrad because I already had a, a degree, and so, and just after, so ninety seven, ninety eight, I, I think there were there was no um, short film fund or anything in Victoria at that stage. So, by the time I think at the some mid ninety eight or something, everybody there were just like you know thousands of people trying to get films up through Film Victoria mm. because in that stage it was it was a lot harder to to do films. People were still working in film, Break and Enter was shot on film, Headlock, my graduation film was shot on film. 
And in fact, Break and Enter was edited on a Steenbeck. Oh, so wow. um, uh, it, the other That's people who went through actually went edited on uh, digitally, but we we would try, you know, our, our meagre funds, we were trying to sort of stretch as much as we could. Mm. And um, so that was really good. That was really fun. And that came about because a friend who I'd gone to school with, so I've known her since I was five years old, she was an actress and then she start, went into writing and she wrote the script for Break and Enter and we and in fact she was with another director and I can't remember what happened but I think that other director pulled out because um, I think she was going to do her own uh, another film and so Trudy asked me and we got together and then we approached Melanie Coombs who at that stage had just graduated from AFTRS Producing Strand I think. And she... Sorry to cut you off. She went on to produce uh, Adam Elliott's short yep. that won an Oscar. Yeah, she did. Yeah. yeah. And the feature, Mary and Max. Mm. And she's just got something else up now as well, actually, um, with a guy called Chris Jones writing and directing. And that's a time... I don't, I don't know if it's time travel film, but it's it's a, a high concept right. film. Yeah. Feature she's got up. Yeah, so we... We did break and enter. We shot it in three days, um, so which is probably quite a long time. Maybe long. T- um, it was about. I guess we shot about a twelve-minute, eleven-minute film or something, which then we cut down to about nine minutes, and and that that did really well for us as well. It was a really neat script, really neat idea, which you need for a short film. Mm. And how was that uh, useful for you once you came out of film school? It, it did really well. So it won the AFI for that year and it did really well in overseas festivals. It got a cinema release. So it really did as well as a short mm, film could it's do. It's quite remarkable. Yeah, it was, it was really great. And at that stage, Tropfest hadn't quite taken off to be... Uh, the career launching kind of festival that it it subsequently did. Mm. So at that stage, people were paying more attention to the AFI awards, and um, so so it was good. I got an agent, and I st- I did other things like I I did the Blue Healers Moldercam directing course, and then I did a short stint on Neighbours as an attachment, but I also was able to direct an episode. And then I um, immediately went and became Michael Rhymer's assistant on Queen of the Damned. And that, that in some ways was out of the blue, but what happened there was I had actually, in a former life I was actually a singer and I had sung on the Angel Baby soundtrack. So mm. Michael, it was one of those weird things um, where one day I came home and there was, and this was in the days where you had answering machines <laughs> and the light was flashing and it was from somebody called Michael Reimer who was making some film called Angel Baby and he uh, was wondering if I would be interested in singing on the film and he had listened to a, uh, an album with where, I, which, where I'd sung on and he really liked the particular vocals that I was doing so he looked me up in the phone book so yeah. this is this is the analogue world we were living in mm. um, and 8K 
Yeah, yeah, 80k. And he and rang me. It happened to be my correct phone number was in there, which is a miracle in itself because I used to move a lot and mm. it was always a year behind. And so we, so I went and and did a little bit of singing there. And then when Break and Enter um, was playing in festivals in overseas, I then I I went to Aspen and I was in LA for a little while. And at that point, I heard that Michael had got a film up, Queen of the Damned, which is going to be shooting in in Melbourne. And I thought that would be so amazing to be be an attachment or something like that on that film and see see how it all works. And so I rang the old number that I had for him and I left a message and I never heard from him. And then about four months later, when I was at RMIT, because I had then went to RMIT and I did a screenwriter's course and my phone rang, it was Michael, and he said, do you want to start tomorrow? So it was just, <laughs> it was just amazing. And I, so I'd just come up the neighbours thing and I, and I went immediately on to the um, Queen of the Damned and that was that was amazing and it was so great to to see to see all that and something else that I'd done actually before that I in between film school and break and enter was I did an attachment with a guy called Michael Carson who was a really great experienced TV director and I did that on sea change mm. and I learned a lot from him um, mostly about um, shot choreography which I felt was my weak was my weak spot I really enjoy actors and working with actors and that kind of storytelling and the the mood and emotion of that and the psychology and the journey but um but the and I felt that where I needed to get stronger was in the shot choreography and, and Michael was a real expert at that and it was really great to to have that practical um, knowledge sort of passed on and uh, so yeah so I had this experience of sea change the attachment on sea change an attachment on neighbors and then an attachment on queen of the dam so I had these these different mm. totally different kinds of worlds that um, I was able to to compare and contrast and draw from and three different styles of directors as well it was mm. really great and it's something that uh, I think is a very important thing because actors get to work on lots of different sets. Most crew get to work on lots of different sets and, and experience different kinds of relationships with directors, but directors rarely get that experience of seeing what it's like, um, seeing how other people work. Mm. So so I really think that the, you know attachments and internships are a great thing. Mm. So you're just continuing your education, really? Yeah. Via attachments and going to RMIT and yeah continuing the pursuit of uh, that um, expansion I guess yeah yeah I, I am I, I do really enjoy learning learning and I'll, and I'll, it, it's something that keeps me keeps me motivated and keeps me going I mm. don't think I would ever say okay I know I know everything I, I ever need to know now and that's it yeah. Mm. <laughs> you mentioned in there uh, that in a former life you were a, a singer. Yeah. And uh, going back to my thinly veiled research, I did see that you uh, came from a background in theatre and that you have actually written 
a few plays. Yeah. And you mentioned off air that you were actually brought up in the industry. Oh, yeah. Um, well, my mum is an actor, Joy Mitchell. She, she, and she was, as I was growing up, she was always on stage. She was always um, uh, in working in theatre and then, and then in television. So she was working in, um, she, all, that was in the era of all those Matlock Police and Division 4 and Cop Shop and all of the Crawford productions, which was a fantastic era for Australian television, for film production, film and TV production. And so, so I, I grew up reading lines with her and, you know, again, and, and in that world with, with actors and, and backstage and things. So um, I do feel pretty pretty comfortable in that world and then and and yeah my mum then became a theatre director so so that I was I was an adult by that stage so then I um yeah with the I think I've just what I did was I I converted my graduation film Headlock into a stage play and I, I put that on and then a friend of mine Beth Buchanan, who I had cast in Headlock for my graduation film. Beth had also written a play and we put them on as a double and we put them on at La Mama. We, we actually put them on at the Fitzroy Gallery, which mm. was run by La Mama. And, and that was good. They, they went well. And in fact, I think they were both shortlisted and, and Headlock was a finalist um, for the Green Room Awards. Wow. So they... Um, yeah, so they did they did well and got very good press, which was which was good. And then another one I did with Adam writing. So Adam wrote a cricket play set in the right. set yeah. in the um, MCG dressing room on the night on, on Christmas night. Yeah, would it be Christmas night? Yeah, Christmas night, and then the first day of the Boxing Day test. Right. And and so and that was in La Mama, and so that so La Mama was turned into like a little dressing room, cricket dressing room, and and that was really good. And that in fact, Cricket Australia came and bought it out one night, and they all they all watched it, and and they really loved it. And then they got us to come and redo it, restage it for their AGM, which was very fun. And we did it in front of Alan Border and Mark Taylor, <laughs> all these cricket greats. Wow, that would have been so much fun. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's great. So you obviously get to work with Adam quite a lot. Um, had him on here not long ago, chatting about his life and his journey. And one of the things that I like to talk to people a lot about is about creating and sustaining romantic relationships in this industry because some people find it very difficult to sustain relationships and other people like yourselves find great comfort and ease in the creative process and through that you come together yeah i think that's true and i think it is a process not just a creative process but also the relationship becomes a process Mm. and that's the only because i know other people who other couples who have started to work together and it's very rocky when you first start and if you can push through that, then then it can work, because it's a little bit of a perfect storm. As kind of creative people, you are super sensitive, 
and you so there's that you're already sensitive you've written something and really what you want is somebody to just to to say how great it is yeah and especially your beloved your significant other mm. and and if they look at it and they give you notes on it it's it can be really hard to hard to do and also me working with adam as well as an actor and director that's that you guys are very in each other's be, pockets yeah and and adam you know it's i think it's yeah it's it's challenging oh i mean i i won't speak for him but I personally I find it less challenging I suppose because it is a complete collaboration and something like Lowdown was a genuine synthesis mm. of our voices and I think that comes across yeah yeah it does I mean the first episode the pilot was Adam did the first sort of drafts and he kind of created a little bit of that and then I came in in the in the last few passes so I think that has more of Adam's voice and also Adam also says about it that he, that he was still a bit in Wilfred world and it, was, it has a kind of a bit of a harder, more masculine kind of edge, I suppose. And, um, and then it became, when it came to actually writing the series, it was much more of a synthesis of our voices. And... And that worked. It, it it did work really well. But there were there were really tough times when. And I th- I think. You know, it's it's a long process of. Uh, really becoming, you have to co- kind of become egoless when you when you're in this process, and. Um, that it's easier to get to that spot a day or two after you've given somebody, given your partner, your work. Mm. I think if you give somebody your work, it's much harder to to hear any notes on it. Like, the longer you leave it, the much it becomes much, much easier. So mm. you've got to sort of balance that. Obviously, you've got to say what's great about it as well and what you love and what's what's really working and the funny bits... But being sensitive writers, mm. that that all becomes just a wall of white noise, and the only things that you pick out <laughs> are the are the insults, mm. are the mortifying, you know, insults. Compliment that sandwich doesn't work. <laughs> yeah, well, it's not really compliments. It's actually it's actually um, it's saying what your experience of the of the text is and the world is and if there's po- if you're having a really positive experience you've got to you've got to say that or else mm. because what can happen it's a really awful discouraging thing if it does happen if you don't say that then the writer will go off and they might change things that you actually thought were funny you know the couple few lines that you thought were great that they might get cha- you know so so suddenly they're undoing their work because you've actually undermined their confidence instead of it, so in, you know you you end you end up going to the side or even going backwards. Mm. So y- yeah, it's important to give that positive, mm. the positive feedback as well. And lowdown was the first thing that you guys worked on together. It was a, it was the third thing. Third thing. Yeah. So the inner sanctum play was the first thing that was oh, yeah. produced, and. So Adam wrote that and then I came in and sort of dramaturged it a little bit, which is basically script edited um, in theatre speak. And and then I directed it. And then 
uh, and we also had a, a film script that Adam had started working on called Troy Miller Ate My Hamster, <laughs> which was set in the tabloid world and is set in the 90s around the time of which was which is sort of the kind of halcyon days of tabloid it's it's the wild west they were real cowboys mm. naming and shaming and mm. and they, they call them hey doris hey doris's because it was so so scandalous the things that they would print with their pun headlines and things like that right they imagined that the two that the middle-aged couple or whatever is sitting in their lounge room and they go hey doris listen to you know listen to this and um so they call so that was the world that they were living in and maybe you know some people still are <laughs> but um but i think after diana's death everybody was a little bit chastened and the other thing that happened was the internet started to um become a much more sort of viable way of people consuming news and, and it has meant that there's been a decline since of the newspapers. Mm. So this so we, this was set at that point. And um, Adam was writing it and I was, I was script editing it and ultimately will direct it uh, if we're actually now in the stages of getting it up. But it preceded Lowdown by uh, quite a few years. And what we it was sort of taking a little while to develop and we actually decided to we cannibalized a lot of it and put it into the lowdown series so when we came back to it after lowdown finished we actually had to kind of reflesh that out with new material mm. yeah but it's a different kind of thing because lowdown is obviously a contemporary series whereas um that that is it's a little bit like his girl friday or something so it's set over the course of a, a day or a couple of days and um, in, in a slightly undefined period mm. where, when everything was going well in tabloid journalism and they didn't know they were on the edge of an era that was about to about to end. Yeah, right. Yeah. That sounds great. Yeah, it's really, it's really funny. It's real. Um, I'm, you know, fingers crossed we'll get it up. Yeah. Mm. And so do you remember... Do you remember the moment where you guys thought, let's work together? I don't think there was ever a moment, actually. I think it it, it kind of developed organically with us giving each other whatever we were working on. And Adam... I'm, a, I'm quite a good finisher, and Adam is a very good kind of starter. And so that we, we generally complement each other quite well in our working lives. Adam will often... Even though we split the scripts, say there's eight in a series, we'll split them four and four. I'm really slow at doing the first draft. I have uh, because Adam was a journalist, so he was very, very um, already fit, match fit in terms of turning things around very quickly. Um, whereas I was a little bit more of a dilettante, and I, I would write on inspiration and things. So I, was, I wasn't a professional writer, like. Animals. I know all about that. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I really had to become much more, much more fit and muscular in the way that I approached and professional, basically. But so what would happen is Adam would be writing a lot of. He would then go, okay, I'll I'll write another one of your first drafts, <laughs> right. and uh, and then I'd be doing more work on the back end and and coming in then and um, so that 
so that sort of worked well although I'd like to think now I'm better at writing from a blank page yeah uh, but so that was a bit of a digression the the thing was that he so he would give me it was never really intended that I would be part of his creative journey but he he would give me a script like Troy Miller and then I would very enthusiastically give detailed notes and ideas and things like that which sparked I think and inspired him a bit and mm. then he'd go on and he'd get a much better draft and then when, when you do that process a couple of times he would read it and go actually I realised this is kind of half you yeah. and so it, and that ha that very much happened with Lowdown as well and also he really he really likes my directing and supports my directing so he, he always wants me to direct his staff um and so I think he likes the idea of me being involved at the writing stage just so that I have more of a, um, just m more of my hands dirty already with the whole process, the whole creative process of building the world out and the characters. Mm. So that works. However, I think, you know, we've worked a lot together and we now are starting to try and break apart a little bit um, so that, be because it's actually really nice if I'm working on something and then I can come home at the end of the day and and debrief to a fresh piece of e pair of ears who is not emotionally involved in what I'm doing or trying to achieve, mm. and vice versa. So, um, you know, if if he, I can't really debrief on something when he, it's his work as well, and what I'm saying is actually possibly you know d hurting him in some yeah. way, rather, uh, you know, he can't be entirely impartial so so it's really nice to have two separate when you when you've got two separate projects going that mm. you you can just be husband and wife to each other and um, not be not have anything vested in that your each other's projects mm. you can't really go home on a Friday evening and say thank God I don't have to see those <laughs> yeah yeah uh, Adam said he had he would have a really low tolerance of um, being directed within like for household duties and things like that after being directed by me all day on set and then yeah. come home and I said when you wash that thing can you just <laughs> make sure that you use the soap in this way just stand and, on that mark yeah. <laughs> yeah so it does it it is wearing a little bit yeah so how have you managed to sustain I guess the magic of the relationship because I'm sure having a shared dream and a shared vision and starting your own production company would be quite an amazing way to keep that flame burning. Yeah, it is. And not, not necessarily just because of itself, but because of the things that it, it's allowed us to do. So um, we, we have had some great experiences going to Monte Carlo when Lowdown was uh, nominated for um, Best International Comedy wow. over there. And Adam and Beth were both nominated for International um, Comedy Actor and Actress. Wow. So, so those sorts of things. And then um, it's, it's enabled us to have really some great experiences that we sort of cherish at the time because you, you know it, it is a big wheel of fortune and, mm. and you're up and then you're down and then you're up again. And, not many um, couples would get to have adventures in that kind of way. Yeah, 
Yeah, so so there is the creative adventure and and then there is also the spin-offs from that um, which which have been great. I mean they they're not you don't have them every day, but when you do have them they they really they sort of help things <laughs> along. And the other thing is it it is you know just like any relationship you you have to manage it just by being kind to each other and mm. you know just occasionally I go through because we tend to be quite insular and stay at home a lot and um, occasionally I go through phases where I say okay we've got to every week one of us has to organize a date night we have to organize somewhere to eat and something to do and it could be the day or the night but we've got to do that and uh, and then we just end up kind of forgetting, and then we just end up staying home and watching, you know, Netflix or something. Yeah, it sounds really beautiful. <laughs> oh, it's got its downside. And also, we've got cats, and we both we both adore those cats, and they keep they you know help things along as well. Mm. How long ago did you guys meet? Uh, um, in two thousand and two. Right, it was yeah, at St Kilda Film Festival. Yeah, it was. I remember my podcast with Adam correctly. Yeah, it was, yeah. And I asked him where your first date was, and I remember it was a film, but I don't remember what... Uh, I think it was Spider-Man 2. That's right. Yeah. And I asked him if it was Tobey Maguire. It was, yeah. It was mm. the, whole, the Upside Down Rain Kiss and things like that. Yeah, right. I'm pretty sure it was Upside Down, because I remember thinking that wouldn't water go up his nose. <laughs> I couldn't quite get swept away with the romance of it. Yeah couldn't suspend your disbelief no no that knocked me out for a moment and then I got back in right and you guys dated for a number of years before you got married yeah no only about a year and a half I think okay. in fact we it happened quite quickly because um yeah I uh, I think it just happened quite quickly because of our various life circumstances of having to I had to move out and 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 then we ended up and so Adam we ended up kind of living together quite soon after we started actually dating and then um and then about a year later or so we got married mm. bit yeah and now you have a small empire together <laughs> yeah a very small one yeah <laughs> <laughs> when did you establish highway about five years ago i think it was about five years ago because it was just it was nicole's idea nicole Minchin's idea the producer we work with and she and it was something that adam and i wanted to do as well because there I think in Australia in particular it's quite important that because it's very the, the pool of money is so small that if you do create a a world and an idea you know basically a TV show it's really nice to have a stake in that going going forward however it's set up that you do have to sign over all your rights to a producer mm. um, we we didn't really want to do that and um, and Nicole was really respectful of that as well, and so we formed a company together, and that made sense to us because between the three of us, we had most of the key creative uh, areas covered. Mm. So yeah, that was that started about just after the first season of Lowdown, and um, you know, the, for the first three years, it was really pretty back to back productions, which was which was really good. It's quite a formidable body of work that you have between the three of you. Yeah, yeah. It's it, it, we were we, we we were pretty fortunate at that time, you know, getting getting started. Mm. Mm. 
How and how did Nicole come into the picture? Well, Adam had worked with her on The Wedge. Cause Adam, so Adam was in that um, comedy, the Channel 10 sketch comedy, oh, yeah. The Wedge. And Nicole was one of the line producers on it. And they got on really well. And Nicole was also interested in doing other things. So I think she then went off and produced um, a couple of shorts. And so she was interested in, in producing proper. And so when Adam and I wrote Lowdown, we, or particularly Adam and I, came in on the back end of it. <laughs> um, uh, the pilot, we had a read-through of it and we invited Nicole. And so we were just in our lounge room and a bunch of people came and we read it and, and Nicole loved it. And so we said, let's try and get it up. And she got involved at that stage and then we got, coincidentally, and this is just... Anybody who has had any success in this industry will tell you that there has been at least one stroke of absolute good fortune. And this, this one was that we ha- it happened to coincide with Film Victoria having a pilot scheme, funding, oh, wow. fun- funding for a pilot. And so we were able to... We applied for that. And by this stage, we'd not only written the first episode like the pilot we'd also written the whole bible we'd written outlines for every episode and um and we had a lot of cast attached we'd given um jeffrey rush the script the bible um not the sorry the pilot script and he liked enough to agree to be the narrator and so we had this great team and everything attached and we got the fund the pilot funding and made the pilot and that that was un without doubt the difference between getting the show up and not getting the show up mm. um, having having a pilot to show mm. that would have been useful for me about 12 months ago yeah oh absolutely yeah mm. it was really good and it, it did fund a few things it's a real shame they didn't it, it didn't go on uh, I, I'm sure it probably ended up maybe there weren't enough hits I yeah. suppose because I, I, I have a feeling that um, that there weren't many shows that actually then went up on to get a production however now um sorry to be commissioned however now the landscape has shifted a little bit and some i'm sorry i'm now thinking aloud about you know strategies for film funding but um now it's a lot more global and if you Mm. do have a a pilot i don't think you don't have to just show australian networks you you can also well uh, apart from the digital platforms that are available, you can also go overseas if you, if you can, if you have those, those connections. So, so now um, that's that's broadened out a little bit, and there's mm. more opportunity to to show people your work and and hopefully get it get the show up somewhere. Mm. And there's also I know Screen Australia have a scheme at the moment that is for multi-platform um, yeah. productions, which. I know a couple of uh, people who, or production companies that have received that and have made, you know, six-part web series that have in their own right created uh, interest and following in the work that these people are creating. So Yeah. Yeah, that's a really good one too. That um, the I think it's for fiction, so it's, yeah. not, it's not for non-fiction. And, um, yeah, so that's another way. So different, you know, the landscape is constantly shifting and you've, you've got to be strategic if you, if you want to you know, get something up and 
just keep on top of the different possibilities. Mm. Mm. You've tended to direct pretty much your own words, uh, so to speak, or yours or Adam's. Yeah. Um, how important is it for you to be creating your own work and constantly turning that over? Well, it was a little bit, and writing for me, um, it, I do find it, you know, I, I find it hard um, just to have to go very deep into a very deep hole and have that focus and be, I mean, it's, it's it, you know, the, it's sort of fun. And Adam and I will often, mm. you know, will act out things and do things because <laughs> you, you have to do it. You have to be kind of workshopping yeah. things. And um, so it can be fun, but really um, directing is what I, I really feel very at home in and very... Um, uh, it's one of those things that when I'm on set, I feel like I know exactly what I need to do, and and it's uh, I I just I really enjoy it. So the trick it, it's it's much harder to get work as a director than it is to get work, say, as yeah. an actor or a writer, or, or because there are fewer opportunities. So creating shows actually was for me a, a vehicle for me to be able to work as a director. I I do. I really enjoy working with other people, so I really enjoyed working with Trudy on Break and Enter, and um, I, I've done other little things that I've directed um, a a little um, children's animation series for Matchbox Pictures, and it's it's always it's actually much you feel much lighter in a way when you actually go and and direct other people's work because mm. you you i think i'm you you can become a bit obsessive when it's your own stuff because you've been with it for so long and you know exactly how it should be done <laughs> and it's and it, the information it's should be yeah, yeah and um so you're more attached i think i find if i've created something myself I'm actually more attached to to the vision of it whereas I think you can when you're directing other people's stuff you can be um, much more fluid mm. um, yeah it's there's just the, the attachment isn't there and I think the attachment is is not a good thing when mm. you when you're directing because that's when you can become unbearable and compulsive yeah, I mean, attachment, attachment's not really a very good thing just in general. No. <laughs> um, this is something that I've been learning a lot myself lately is the idea of non-attachment. It's not being detached, but it's not... It's being non-attachment. I know that's not the right way of saying it. Yeah. But non-attachment as opposed to detachment because detachment implies that you don't care. Whereas non-attachment is that you're kind of flinging yourself in the general direction that you want to be going and the general direction of where you hope things are going to end up, but you're, you don't have such an emotional investment in the outcome. Yeah, yeah. It's a healthy state of, of being in the world, I think, if you're, not, um, if you're not attached. Because it allows you to be more responsive to changing, to, to mm. things that are changing. And so... Yeah, and when you're directing something, you have to you have to be responsive to 
what the actors are doing, what the you know what the weather's doing, what the, you know yeah. ev- everything. Um, you, you have to be constantly responsive to what's going on, as well as, and this is what you're saying by <laughs> not it not being detached, as well as still having that you know you're you're still actually sort of navigating the waters but you're so you're not just kind of you haven't dropped the oars and you're just letting life take you where you want Mm. you're you're actually navigating the waters but you're you're not when the current starts to go the other way you're not sweating and and rowing frantically you're actually going okay so this is so we need to actually go in this direction now Mm. gotta go with the flow yeah a little bit yeah (laughs) yeah adam and i had a had a conversation about that just this morning, actually, I, I suggested that he go with the flow a bit, and he said he can't because he's a goat, whereas I'm a fish, so I <laughs> I can't because I'm Pisces and he's Capricorn. Right. And I and I said no, you're a human and I'm a human, and we can both go with the flow. Yeah. And I think being a, a director and a writer and an actor, perhaps these more creative kind of roles. I think especially as a director, you have to be present and you have to be fully present for the 12-hour shoot day and that requires a tremendous amount of uh, energy but it also requires a lot of flexibility um, in that non-attachment because things can go uh, in the complete opposite direction to the way that you've planned and often that's where great things can come from. Yeah, yes. I mean, there's a lot of there's a lot of different interesting aspects to filmmaking and one of them is definitely problem solving and if if something it, you have to have a problem in order to be able to problem solve yeah. so <laughs> uh, and it is it is in those situations when things when the unexpected happens that you are forced to possibly be the most creative but well the most intensely creative because you have five seconds to to Mm -hmm. think of something else and and solve it so yeah you have to be mentally on your toes and um and in order to really be responsive like that you can't really be stressed so that's something that's important to us on a film set that um if possible a low low fast low stress Mm. film set so and i quite like quiet a quiet set as well um, for for that reason, just so just so that everyone's stress levels are, are lower, and if we can't encounter something, I I just think that it seems to just be more easier and more efficient to work that way. Mm. And if you encounter a problem, you're already in a kind of a, a, a less stressed frame of mind when you have to respond to it. Mm. Adam mentioned to me that you have a meditation. Or meditative kind of practice that you like to oh do. yeah 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 I've been meditating for for over 20 years wow yeah what sort of meditation do you do um TM so that's okay. transcendental meditation yeah yeah that's something that I've been trying to find in Melbourne but I haven't really been successful oh well I can I can give you I can tell you who teaches it mm, so what's uh, what is your practice involve Oh, well, um, I... I know you can't tell me your mantra, but... No. <laughs> um, I've actually done a, a bit with it. So I, I've, I've done... So I do meditation 
and then I also have done these sort of advanced techniques as well well some of them you do simultaneously with your meditation and and then I do another program the cities program so if I do a full program it could be about half an hour to 40 minutes mm. and then at the end I, I rest and I listen to some Vedic music mm. so and and I also do a bit of yoga as well when I can it really is you know time it time dependent if I've got the time I'll try and do a full program and if I haven't I'll just do what I can mm. and does the full so the full program does that involve and forgive my terminology is not quite right different pranayamas or is that uh, yeah I, I, I would do a pranayama I just do one particular pranayama at the beginning so I mean if you did a full one you do your yoga like asanas for 10 minutes and then you do pranayama for 5 minutes and then you um, do the do meditation for 20 minutes mm. but you know this is I think if you if you hadn't done any meditation this would sound kind of frightening because of the how much time it would take to do all that mm. um, so when I first started I was just doing I was just meditating twice a day for 15 minutes, or 15 yeah 15 or 20 minutes twice a day mm. and possibly the the most fantastic thing I've done was last year this time last year I went to India and I went on a um, high altitude trek through the Himalayas to the source of the Ganges. Oh, wow. To the glacier that feeds the Ganges. And I went with about 10 or 12 other people who I didn't know. They were from all over the world and they also did transcendental meditation. So um, we, yeah, there was, we spent about two weeks over there and gradually... Uh, it, it's not as high as um, uh, as Everest, but it's it was still quite high. And and when we were in Ganga Tree, which is the village in the national forest there, you, we stayed there a couple of days to acclimatise, and then and then went with some Sherpas and took the uh, took the tents and things and went and um, camped up right uh, in uh, actually there's a place called Gamuk, which is the uh, which basically just has a little tiny temple. And it's like a moonscape because it's above the tree level there. And uh, and there's a little temple there. And the glacier has receded quite a bit. So there's still another half an hour walk past there. And uh, we camped at a, at a place which is not quite as far as there. So we, we had to make day trip to the glacier but it was amazing and I actually dipped in the Ganges up there right at the source of the the glacier so which was freezing and when I so I just um got my feet in basically and then and got my hands and I just threw water over myself and and I collected some of that water and I brought it back in a thermos and I um gave some to Adam and to my friend Beth Buchanan as well we and and my niece who just turned 18 at that Point. and so I got I made her um, self like oh, what do you call it when you it's, anyway it's, just, it's like you just drop some water on it it's it's and it's like a, it's supposed to be a cleansing kind of thing mm. and so I so she kind of thought it was hilarious and I made her do it as well <laughs> one day when she gets to around about 30 she'll go that was a really cool thing my aunt got me <laughs> yeah I showed her photos of where I'd collected the water from and you know, so I, and I didn't tell her that I'd collected this water, so I just said, so then we were here and here, and I showed her this amazing 
photos of this landscape and then the glacier and then I said and this water is from there and there you, you're gonna I'm gonna put it in a bowl and you're gonna splash yourself with it uh. and she yeah she thought that was hilarious because she is so my sister is so, so straight and not not into anything like that at all and, but mm. they they're very they humored me which is nice mm. this is probably a redundant question at this point but you consider yourself to be a spiritual person uh, um uh yeah I, I would yeah mm. I think uh, one of the consistent things that's been said by uh, people who I've spoken to on this podcast is a belief that God is just another word for love and that it's this kind of loving energy and loving force that is kind of what binds us and when you tap into that and you can kind of live from a place of almost unconditional love, that's I guess what the idea of enlightenment is or something to that kind of effect. Yeah, I I definitely think that that, um, that that's the case. I, I, I and I th- I have been quite interested in learning more about this from um, I, I have a friend who has studied, you know, all this quite deeply and spent a, a long time with Mahashi, actually. Oh, wow. And um, and I've been very interested to, to yeah, it's it's very interesting, this Vedic knowledge that, that there is. Um, so the Vedas are texts, Sanskrit texts, that were written 5,000 years ago, Um or more, and um, the and and in those texts there were things about health, about science, about architecture, uh, uh, just about every every aspect of modern life. There is there is something about them, and I think these Vedic texts were very influential on Greece and so on as well. So that they um, uh, got they emigrated <laughs> the 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 knowledge emigrated and kind of got picked up all over the world um, but one of one of the interesting things um, that they talk about is so it, so say that it's just there's just a field because I, I yeah I'm trying to put put it together in my head about what how the how the world works and say it's just a field so one of the things that always I wondered about was what what is the it, what is the inspiration what for creation in the first place so say the big bang or something like that and um so say you've got a field and what they what they would say is to say it's a field of it's actually pure consciousness so the field is is just existing it's pure consciousness and it is it's a state of unity so how does everything, this multiplicity, come out of a state of unity? And so what the answer in the Vedic texts is, is that you have consciousness becoming conscious of itself. And as soon as that happens, you have three things. You've got the subject, consciousness, and you've got the process of consciousness, and you've got the object, which is consciousness. And that is the spark that... that you have an explosion of dynamism from from that spark, and it's a tri- and if you think about it in um, biblical terms as well, you've got the Holy Trinity. Yeah. So the Father, Son, and the Holy Ghost, which sound like three nouns, whereas this this is two nouns and a 
and a verb, but um, but you still have the the unity, the oneness, and then you've got the the Trinity, and from that you have everything arising from that. That becomes the seed. Mm. Understanding and of realizing how little you understood previously when you felt like you were getting somewhere with knowing stuff and. Yeah. Well, the reason I I went on that long digression is because it was that idea of saying God is love is you know it, it, it might yeah, yeah yes is is love is is bliss is pure consciousness is you know I mean if you uh, I I wonder whether they are different ways of describing the same thing or whether mm. they are slightly different things and so that's why I go to the unity and then the so you've got the consciousness being the object of the process of mm. consciousness or you've got the process of consciousness or you've got consciousness being the subject and I don't yes yeah, so I'm wondering where where would that concept of God which for me is an abstraction and beyond mm. words um, would sit in that field and, and in that kind of process mm. I, I so did not expect it be talking about any of this <laughs> ever let alone today <laughs> mm, sometimes we kind of circle around the rabbit hole and then just jump in <laughs> yeah right <laughs> so do you feel like the meaning of why we're here what we're doing here is about a conscious awakening i think that's part of it for sure Mahashi Mahesh Yogi said something really interesting which was the the purpose of life is the expansion of happiness mm. And the, beautiful. It is. And the reason it's so interesting is that, is that it's, he, doesn't, he doesn't say the purpose of life is the expansion of your happiness. Mm. He's saying it's the expansion. So, so we are instruments which can experience and create happiness and that is the, pers- the, the purpose of life. So it's, it's yes, he's, he's getting it away from the whole... The ego. The, yeah, the, the ego and the individual and it's... And um, I, th- and when you when you can feel that, then you you don't feel that you need to search for meaning. I think when you when you feel like you need to search for the meaning of life is when you've fallen out of, a f- you know, you you've kind of slipped out outside that experience yeah, a little yeah. bit, so and then you need to anymore. yeah, and then you need to reconnect with that experience, and then you start, then you 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 lose the need to to because you're not intellectualizing it you're just feeling it yeah exactly yeah Mm. i'm not sure if it's because i am immersing myself or have been immersing myself in in this world but i feel like there is kind of a collective uh it's like it's becoming quite acceptable and accepted uh in mainstream society and culture in western culture um to be having these practices and doing them yeah, I think so. Um, I think that's true. And I think that there is generally, um, the society is, is, the community is generally becoming a little bit more conscious. And mm-hmm. you can see that happening um, with, I think, uh, cruelty to animals, the, the way their attitudes have changed over the past 10 or 20 years. Um, all of those things where people are suddenly becoming more aware and more empathetic and you can do that as your kind of consciousness expands and I think you have a a group consciousness as a society and then um, that does 
it, yeah, it probably makes people more tolerant of people who are somehow on a spiritual path or, or meditating and so on. So there's a couple of uh, standard questions that I haven't asked you. <laughs> um, the first question is, we kind of touched on it before we were, um, we were talking about when you grew up, but I'm very curious about when the first time that people, perhaps in their childhood or teenage years, um, entertained an audience or it could be a family or, or whatever and got that feedback that kind of said, this is something that I want to do for the rest of my life. Do you have a moment or a memory of that? Um, uh, well, I, from a very early age, I put on puppet shows, I did dance shows, I, did, I had constructed a thing and I had shadow puppets. I, I made a ghost train for my friends. I, made, I did um, little tiny Super 8 films. So this is all up until the age of 10. So oh, wow. I, I don't, yeah, I don't have any particular memory, except I do remember feeling absolutely thrilled when my friends would run out of the ghost train that I'd set up screaming. Um, I think it was mainly my sister's friends, actually, I did that too. It was like an installation, I suppose, and I hooked things up and then I had recordings and then I had a ways of slamming doors and things like that in this particular... I, I just <laughs> <laughs> made them walk through this. And, yeah, and just puppets and things from when I was like three and four years old. I, I'd, meet, I'd go back behind the couch and I had my little sister and I'd make her... And I'd written something and I'd make her, her um, be the other puppets... And we'd have, you know, two on the hands. We'd have little, do little plays behind the couch. So, I, yeah, I was always doing something. So there was no one particular mm. memory that I have. Mm. But it's always kind of been in your blood and in your system that you want to, or that you are creating and that you are being creative. Yeah, I suppose. And I thought it was something that my sister and I shared. And so it was a real surprise to me when she just went in a completely different direction. She's she's a primary school teacher and she was teaching music so she did have she did that. But um now but now when I look back on it I realise that she, she's very sweet. She's a younger sister and I was just basically forcing her to do these things. So I have these very fond memories whereas she probably is quite oppressed by it. I've never actually talked to her <laughs> about it but the way that she's kind of rebelled against all of those cultural things makes me think that i probably damaged her in some way Mm. fair enough we all damage (laughs) our siblings yeah yeah that's what they're for fortunately my brother is not here to produce this and tell you how i damaged him all right (laughs) by doing wrestling moves on him yeah yeah well i i never she actually very quickly became bigger than me so it would have been a pointless exercise mm. for me to try and beat Couldn't her up. Anyway. drive her. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Thank you so much, Amanda, for this chat today. Um, I really appreciated it, and um, thank you for going there with me. <laughs> there is one question that I like to ask everyone before we wrap up, and that is, what makes you silly? It's, it can be, what is it about you that is silly, or what is something that makes you go silly? The phrasing of the question is appalling. <laughs> right, um, yeah. you have a... Uh, PhD in linguistics makes me feel even more ashamed <laughs> of my sentence structuring, but it is it's, it is ambiguous. But um, I uh, I don't know one one silly thing that I do, and I'm going to drop Adam in this as well because we're in a kind of a foliard <laughs> do we both do it, and and that is um, we we have animal voices that we do, and oh, yeah. so we we. 
bring we we humanize anthropomorphize our cats with voices and we'll have conversations and then occasionally we have joke passive aggressive conversations (laughs) in our cats voices about what the other person perhaps should have done if they'd have known better and then we have these passive aggressive arguments which are totally jokey and we crack each other up and yeah (laughs) very very silly Mm. awesome thank you so much amanda really appreciate it (laughs) thanks elson from me and from everyone in the coming up next work a huge thank you to amanda brocci for inviting me into her space into her office and for teaching me uh, about transcendental meditation about being a director and for sharing her points of view and parts of her life and coming up next friends this is a really uh this is a really special uh unique point of view this will be our first international interview we've got one of the world's greatest Alexander Technique teaches. Alexander Technique is an acting technique for voice, for body, for movement. We're going to go into it in the interview. I was fortunate enough to sit down with a man named Jean-Louis Rodrigue. He has worked with people like Leonardo DiCaprio, Patricia Arquette, Josh Brolin. He worked with Ang Lee to work out the mechanics of the way the tiger should move in the life of Pi. Coming up next, friends... Jean-Louis Rodrigue.